0: But you know what i need to understand this industry in a more nuanced way because um it's really important in a lot of ways oh like i just wanted to cry it was just amazing and i just came right back i remember i was there i think i was there for like three days or something on the last morning i was like how how could i go home and i would also say you know think about the mindset that you have when you travel I, I forgot the guy who invented paragliding, actually. I did that for the uh, Infine magazine of United Airlines. That was, that was super fun. I went paragliding with him, he's like in the 70s now, and took me paragliding on the spot where he like, took the para- first paragliding jump.
1: Hello,
2: and welcome to the Win It Travel Podcast with me, James Hammond. Personally, I have been to 50 countries. I've met so many people on my travels that I want to bring on this podcast, and get their story on record. I have plenty of tips and stories to share with you as well. Are you a backpacker, or a traveller, or gap year student, or simply someone who loves to travel? Then this is the podcast for you. Throughout the weeks and months, you'll get many guests and solo episodes where I try to cover all range of subjects within travel. This is a casual and informative travel podcast to inspire you to travel in the future. Do you fancy some bonus content with this episode? Then fear not. If you start to my Patreon today, by going on to www.patreon.com forward slash wingin' it travel podcast, then you'll find these extra features every week for Monday and Friday's episode. One bonus episode every month. Some ad free content, some early access to episodes, the exclusive added travel must have feature on every episode, patron shout out, some ad hoc bonus episodes. You'll get a copy of my Digital Travel Planner, which is available on Etsy, and you'll get my monthly Winging It Travel podcast magazine. If this takes your fancy, you can sign up for £4, $7.50 Canadian, $6 US a month, and I really thank you for supporting the podcast. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks for listening and supporting this, and I'll see you soon. Cheers, James. Let's get into the episode. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode, and I'm joined by award-winning journalist, podcast host, and avid world traveller, Paige McCanahan. Paige is currently hosting the Better Travel podcast, and we're going to discuss that podcast today, dive into Paige's journalism career, and of course, get some favourite spots travelled around the world on record. Paige, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
0: Um, Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here and to speak with you, James.
2: Brilliant. Thank you so much. And where are you based currently?
0: I live with my family in a little village in the French Alps that is about halfway as the crow flies between Geneva and Chamonix so very small village actually our house is in a little hamlet that's just about 12 houses so it's very rural lots of forest and mountains right around us
2: how on earth did you end up there
0: (laughs) that's an excellent question um so my husband and i met in geneva 15 years ago and um and we were actually just over an hour's drive from geneva here so He's from the UK and I'm from the US. So this kind of part of the world sort of feels like our base as a couple. And when we were living in Geneva, we spent a lot of weekends kind of out exploring the mountains. And we discovered this valley and fell in love with it. So fast forward kind of 12 or 13 years, we got married, we had two kids. Mm. And we were living in Kenya, actually. And we thought, where do we want to move with our family and raise our children and sort of settle down a little bit? And we remember this beautiful valley that we had fallen in love with when we were living in geneva so we quit our jobs in nairobi and yeah. we went sort of freelance both of us and um to a little village and it was just before the brexit rules had changed so we were allowed to come in so i'm american but as the spouse of a british person i was still married to a european at that point this is 2018. yeah so we were allowed to just move in, put our kids in a local school, start paying taxes, start working. And I had to apply for a visa as American, um, but I was entitled to one. Um, yeah, and we've been here, that was summer of 2018, and we've been here ever since, and we really like it.
3: Yeah.
2: That's awesome. I was going to ask about the visa situation, but pre-Brexit, not a problem, but I have no idea what the rules are now
0: yeah i think now it's pretty much the same for like if you're a brit hoping to move to europe it's similar as if you were an american or you know canadian wanting to right. move to europe yeah, it's still possible but you have to kind of go through a point system or something and um obviously each country would have its own rules Europe. but uh, yeah it's a lot harder than it used to be but we were lucky very lucky to be sort of grandfathered in and now yeah we're hoping to stay in france for yeah yeah to settle here really
2: nice i think the Brexit situation and decision was shocking. <laughs> I don't care saying, oh that, my God. I'm not getting too political, but things have gone downhill for UK since then, really. And it's kind of come to a head uh, at
1: the minute.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's so, up. you know, we were living in Kenya when the vote happened and my British husband, honestly, he was in bad mood for mm. <laughs> so It was like, it was like, he didn't recognize the country that he thought you knew. I don't know if you had a similar reaction. I
2: just couldn't believe it. Waking up next morning. Oh, has that actually happened? Oh, and I think I'm guilty in a sense that a lot of people thought this like, oh, surely that wouldn't be voted for. Like, yeah, we can have the vote, and there'd be so many people saying, no, we'll stay. Just underestimated the other other lot, really.
0: Exactly. Well, I mean, you know, I think what was it like five months after that vote, America elected Donald Trump, right? So yeah <laughs> a weird <laughs> so year. <laughs> so many Americans were saying, oh, wow, that that would never happen. That's completely impossible. But so yeah, now we're hoping actually to stay in France and kind of settle here and perhaps one day become French nationals if we're, you know, if we pass the right tests and you know, put on our time and uh, yeah. go through all the applications and everything um, because, yeah, we like, we really like living in Europe and now our children who are growing up, you know, in a French school system and, you know, they're really, they speak French like French kids and, you know, when they do eeny, meeny, miny, Mo they do the French version and wow. so we really want to do it for them too because uh, I think that's really good like home for them.
2: Yeah, because like also you'd become... What we were pre-Brexit, right? And especially, especially your husband, like he will be a European citizen, not just a a Brexit UK citizen, which is very, very different these days. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. He calls himself a, a Brexile. I think you
2: know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I sometimes get a little bit of stick for talking about it because I don't live there. I think it's still worth an opinion. yeah, I did grow up there.
0: Oh, for sure. And you still have your passport,
3: right? Oh yeah, yeah yeah, you're,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. You're allowed. You're
2: allowed. Anyway. Not about Brexit, that'll ruin a lot of things. Where did you grow up in the USA?
0: Yeah, so I was born and raised, you know, age 0 to 18 in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is a university town um, and where my parents still live. So very sort of stable, one place in their kind of childhood.
2: Is it quite a small town?
0: Um, it's like, I think the university is maybe 30,000 oh, wow. students or 25,000 yeah. students. So it's a very big university, and um, my grandfather was a professor there, which is why my mom, my Where my mother moved there Um, as a child. But the whole town, it's it's really dominated by the university, so the whole town itself is about 70,000 people or something. It's a small, small smallish city, um, not tiny, but not huge for any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, a lovely place to grow up, um, you know, very stable, and I still love going back there to visit my parents, but most of my friends
1: from childhood have, have moved away now.
2: Right, okay, it does tend to happen more in a smaller place, right? I don't know, maybe it's just normal, actually, I don't know. I don't if there's say data about that, but if you would stay in the bigger city that you grew up in rather than a smaller place, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, that would seem likely. There's just more opportunities there. Yeah.
2: Growing up, as for travel, any sort of travel trips you remember, like early doors that maybe got the pilot light going for like, oh yeah, I like this. It's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, my very first time leaving the United States, um, I was super lucky when I was 11 years old. Um, my family spent, I think it was like 11 or 12 days we spent in Spain. Um, because my grandfather, who was a professor, who was a literature professor at the university there, he had a sabbatical um, in Spain for a year. So he usually lived, you know, ten minutes down the road. Mm. We went to Spain for a year, and we went to visit him when he was on sabbatical. And um, I was 11 years old, and I remember so this would have been 1993. Um, you know, cigarette smoking on the plane on the way over there, <laughs> which kind of like freaked me out. Wow. Um, but times. then I remember just having my mind, my mind blown by this other culture and being in a place with another language and i remember discovering that actually i loved olives like i had always thought i hated olives. Oh. um so that gave me a wonder that was a wonderful first trip and then um when i was a bit older um the summer before my senior year of high school, so when i was 17 i was working as a waitress in high school i saved up money and um, i did a, a one-month exchange um in ghana so i did oh. Um homestay. So I went and stayed with the family in Ghana for a month. Yeah. um, in Accra actually. And that was just wonderful and mind opening. And I loved that experience. And that gave me that was my first time traveling outside of North America or Europe. Yeah. And that gave me real yeah, I don't know, I found that really fulfilling and I really connected with the host family that I was staying with. And so that was another yeah, another significant
1: early trip for me, I would
2: say. That's quite a decent trip, early doors, to get that different perspective from the different type of culture, right, to USA and Europe. Like, that's super early doors.
0: <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I'm still kind of amazed in retrospect that my parents were okay with it. Mm. But um, but no, they were they were very supportive. And it was through, I went through um, American Field Service, AFS, this sort of, you know, organization that runs these things. So it wasn't like I just should, you know, Lived up, and lived up in Ghana and found family to stay with but um no it was really really wonderful and they had I had four host sisters. um and yeah I don't know I really got along well with them and uh, you know and later on in life ended up living in another part of West Africa for a couple of years and I think the decision to move there was in part sort of inspired by the really positive experience i would had in Ghana as a 17 year old.
2: Nice okay and also before we get to further travels later on was there like a inclination in your mind that yeah I think travel is something I want to work in when I'm older or at least explore more
0: yes definitely I mean I, I don't think I ever it ever occurred to me that I might be able to get a job in travel but it was just something that I felt I don't know like this strong impulse to do hmm. and also when I kind of imagined myself as an adult you know maybe when I was a teenager something kind of picturing what life I might have I just couldn't quite Picture myself living in the kind of neighborhood my parents lived in, where I grew up, Mm -hmm. or having kind of job. I just like, it wasn't like I was anti that sort of vision. I just couldn't sort of see myself doing it. I had a real blank. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had lots of sort of daydreams, maybe, vague ideas, but no clear vision. um, Other than I wanted to sort of see the world. So, yeah, yeah.
2: It's crazy at that age we are told to decide. Right, where you're going to go university or college, what you're going to study. I don't know, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll do you yeah. what everyone else maybe does. I don't know.
0: <laughs> well, in England too, you have to decide. I mean, I have nieces who are, um, you know, one niece is actually just starting university yeah. in Nottingham. Mm. And she, um, yeah, you have to decide when you're like, you know, first, 17, what A-levels you're going to do yeah. and what subject you're going to do at university. So I, I find, um, yeah, I'm, I'm so impressed with like these British teenagers who have to choose even earlier than, than we do in America. You know what your specific sort of focus is going to be but uh, I don't know I was always kind of a sort of generalist with lots of you know with some difficulty focusing in on this on a specific topic I guess
2: yeah I kind of envy that a little bit I was just like oh I don't know to give you an example if you're listening 17 years old maybe 16 17 depending on age you sat in an office and your sort of tutor goes right you need to go and apply for UCAS which is like the university company system who takes your application and you choose all your different subjects or places you want to go and they're like right you can choose a maximum six places to go you need to choose six apply to them i'm like i i don't even know where to go i'll pick plymouth liverpool lancaster i pick places that i just like looked on the map went yeah that'll do that's near the sea i'll go there like no thought into it And, and this is what everyone does this is back in early 2000 so i'm not sure if it's different now but crazy when you think about it and yeah I did get into a few but absolutely no idea what I was doing.
0: There you go yeah you're just kind of rolling with things for a bit at that age I guess.
2: Yeah and I think the I guess the most important thing is to get life experience not really the the subject or well it depends what you want to do right you want to be a doctor then you've got a you've got to choose a science or something right so yeah I don't know just a crazy system that we have. Did you grow up also, exploring USA?
0: Well, you know, a fair amount. um Let's see. I mean, we did a lot of camping trips when I was a kid, and we would always drive to Nashville to be for a year, because I think my dad's from, to see my cousins and my uncles and stuff. Yeah. At age eighteen, I left North Carolina and went to college in um, Massachusetts. I went to Williams College, which yeah. is in Western Massachusetts, and um, and discovered New England and really enjoyed um life up there for four years which was a very different climate from the you know climate in which i'd grown up in the south but loved it and learned to cross country ski and really got into i ran cross country you know i did cross country running there just spent a lot of time on the trails enjoying the the berkshire as we say in america the berkshire mountains i'm sorry not not Berkshire, painful painful to an englishman's ears um yeah the berkshire mountains in america berkshire the county in england um, and uh, yeah, and then and I had like cross country meets in Montreal, which was fantastic, and then Boston, and so kind of got to explore around New England and, and further afield through running, which was which was cool too.
2: Nice USA, just to touch on that very quickly. What a country to explore! Like, how many different types of states have you got with different types of topography and like culture and food? And wow, just amazing.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: Oh man, you know I really haven't explored the U.S. as much as I as much as I should have done. But um, yeah, the summer before, oh god, the summer before my third year of college, I worked as a camp counselor in Colorado, and so I had a wonderful summer, like leading kind of 15-year-olds on you know four or five-day hiking expeditions nice. and climbing mountains on my days off, and um, just enjoying the Rockies. That was my first time ever in the Rockies. Age, what, what was I like 20 or mm. something? So that was fantastic. Um, my sister actually lives in Hawaii and has lived in Honolulu since 2003. So I've been out to Hawaii a number of times for years to visit her. So I've gotten to know that state pretty well. Um, yeah, there's so much of the US that I still have. I've never been to New Orleans. I've mm. never been to Dallas or Houston or Philadelphia. I mean, Yeah, so much more still to see. Really. Uh,
2: Hawaii, do you have a favorite island?
0: Oh, favorite island in Hawaii, oh my gosh yeah I would have to say the big island of Hawaii just um the volcanic landscape there is so fascinating and I'm slightly biased because I actually at university i my major in college at Williams my major was geosciences with a focus yeah. on I did my master's or my master's my bachelor's sort of thesis um on like igneous petrology so volcanic rocks um so i well sorry not volcanic rock, on igneous oh gosh
2: <laughs> You've got <forgotten> it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've forgotten it but yeah yeah so the big island the volcanic yeah. landscape of the big island is beautiful and it's so varied and this you can go from these high peaks with snow on them well sometimes snow on them less than before all the way down to you know the, the coast with beautiful spots and um mm. yeah it feels very wild I mean I think the big island is about the size of the state of Connecticut if I remember correctly oh um, okay and very sparsely populated with really sort of wild sections in the middle with so many different types of ecosystems. So mm. um my sister lives in Honolulu on Oahu, so I you know, I gotta sort of give some credit there too. It's um that's a fantastic island as well. Yeah. But um if I had to visit one family aside yeah. it would be um, big island.
2: Yeah. Okay. I did go to Big Island. Uh, it's is the island with uh, mm. is it Hilo and Kona?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Hilo on one side and Kona Kona on the other.
2: Yeah. And we went up to the top of the mountain area for the observation deck at the top of the mountain. Is that, is that Mount Kea?
0: Mona Kea, yeah. Mount Kea, yeah. Oh, I haven't actually been up to the, um, the, sort of the observatory oh, at the top. Oh, okay. That, how was that?
2: That was high. <laughs> at the time, I've, I don't oh. think I've been as high as that. Breathing was hard, but it was also quite windy and quite cloudy. And it's just like a different world, it's like Mars up there.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like sort of, I always think like Mars and sort of moon-like lunar landscapes with the, you know, the lava fields that are really not that old and, um, yeah, it's very otherworldly.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people think Hawaii, of course, of course, it is true of the the beach and uh, like Lanakai Beach, for example, one of my favourite places I've been to, I think, stuff like that. Yeah, and they've got some, not say rough, it is like lava fields, dried lava and all that sort of stuff. Like that is there as well. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah, there are parts of Hawaii that are very wild. Yeah, wild, put a bad word. Certainly not in most in most sort of tourist perceptions or many tourist perceptions, maybe.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you've lived in five countries to date, uh, including now in the French Alps. So where have you lived?
0: Yeah, well, I guess um, six if you count my home country. Oh, okay,
3: right. <laughs> um, yeah, we do yeah,
0: count yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I left the U.S. Um, in 2008. Um, and moved to geneva switzerland where i met ollie my husband um so we were in switzerland for he was there longer than i was but we were there together about two and a half years and then we moved to sierra leone in west africa a small um a small country on the atlantic coast we were there 2000 gosh 2010 to 2012 um and that's where i kind of got my start in journalism yeah So we were there two years, and then we moved to the UK, we moved to Oxford, and we were in Oxford for just under two years. And then from there, we moved to Kenya. We were in Nairobi for about four years. Mm -hmm. Um, We had child one in Oxford and child two in Nairobi. (laughs) And then we moved to France and have been living in the French Alps since the summer of 2018. Nice. yeah, that's ages movements. Yeah, it's hard to keep track of. (laughs) (laughs) Lots
2: of different type of countries there, though. Not same, same.
0: No, no, no. I think that's, um, yeah, definitely. Definitely lots of lots of challenges or lots of different things to adapt to, I guess. But it was really, it was work that brought us to um, Sierra Leone. So we were both, my husband and I were both working for think tanks in Geneva, I was working as an editor, and then he got a job in Sierra Leone. And I was kind of ready to meet, ready to leave my job, and I was hoping to break into freelance journalism. Mm-hmm. And I knew that that was going to be hard to do in a place like Geneva, where there were very well-established journalists. So I was kind of eager to move wherever. And so he was applying for UN jobs all over the place, including like Papua New Guinea, India, I um, forget. Anyway, so he ended up getting a job with the UN in Sierra Leone. And I thought, oh, West Africa.
1: Great. Yeah, yeah. So we moved
0: there. And that's where I started um, pitching stories and get, got my first freelance gigs, which is like, In Freetown, which is the capital, at that point there were like one or two other journalists who were, you know, Western journalists who were pitching stories to outlets, you know, London and New York and Washington and stuff. So it was not a super crowded field. It was a good place to go to break into (laughs) freelance writing.
2: Is that like a good tip maybe? If you want to try and break in, maybe like, I don't know, trying to start in London might be not not impossible, but pretty difficult. But if you can maybe pick somewhere um, maybe not as well established, it might be a good way in.
0: Yeah, I mean... I do not know. I mean, this is a little while ago. I'm not sure how much things changed, but it, it certainly worked for me. I think I would have struggled <laughs> to, um, yeah, to kind of break through the noise because I didn't have any clips. I actually, um, you know, I didn't study journalism. Mm-hmm. I hadn't worked as a, um, you know, on my, like, school paper or anything like that. I had always loved to write since I was very small, but I had always thought that writing would just be a part of a different job that I had. I somehow didn't see myself as just earning a living so away from writing, like I went to graduate school in public policy yeah, um, in environmental management, and I thought, okay, I'm going to be like a policy person who hopefully writes well. But then I thought, you know what, let me just like take a crack at it and see. And um, so when we were in Sierra Leone, I still had some editing work that I was doing for my old job in Geneva, but I started pitching places just sort of on the side. Mm. And, um, yeah, I landed my first story with the Christian Science Monitor, which oh. most people outside the U.S. haven't heard of. It's a news outlet that's based in Boston yeah. that has uh, not so much of a Christian sort of media outlet, but although they do kind of come at it with that sort of, those of values, I guess. Um, but anyway, they were interested in stories about this little corner of West Africa. And so I wrote a lot for them. And then from there, that led me to writing for The Guardian and then from there to The Washington Post. So it was a good place. For me to break in but I guess every freelance journalist will have a different how they broke in story but um but yeah having finding some way to distinguish yourself whether by geographic location or specialty knowledge mm. or specialty access or something like that, is certainly going to help if you don't have a big you know a long list of contacts or yeah or a lot a lot of experience already
2: yeah you could almost say the same for podcasting right do you think it's it's a similar, yeah. similar vibe where can't be too generic i don't think you have to be a little bit niche and if i'm honest i don't even know what my niche is but um when you see some podcasts like wow you're talking about that if you're really into that then little group together like you could really build something
1: there you go
0: no i would say your niche is like giving people a platform to really tell their full stories which is which is wonderful and beautiful and something that not a lot of people offer i know a Hmm. wonderful thing to put out in the world
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm very positive about it. Like Erin, for example, for Alpaca My Bags, all about sustainable travel, Like, If I got asked today, where can I learn about sustainable travel, like this thing? I'd be like, well, Alpaca My Bags, there's no one else that I know consistently talks about that particular subject. So that's like a great niche thing, right? And mm-hmm. I found it quite impressive.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, having um, having a well defined niche, I guess, yeah, can be very, very useful in that sense. Um, and as journalists, you know, we think about it in terms of like, what your beat is. And once you kind of become established, you know, that you're a journalist who covers a certain topic, Mm. then A, you get more context, like you're better sourced in that field. You know, B, you just have more knowledge about it, and C, it's easier to pitch stories on that topic um, and send, like, links to, you know, your clips on similar, you know, similar themes, Mm. so it's probably easier to get get assignments, so. Yeah, but then, you know, I've, I've had different sort of focuses as a journalist, you know, that have lasted like two or three years, and then they kind of shift to something completely different. So Fair. I guess maybe have a niche, but keep it flexible. Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. <a> <laughs> yeah that sounds right, right. I think you're right there. That's why I started my YouTube channel with Coffee and Travel. I was like, oh, I don't see many people Ooh. like traveling and just like showcasing the area and the cafe you're having a coffee in. So I thought that's quite a little bit of niche so the idea for me is like I'll start in Vancouver this year get my sort of feet wet in that like editing mode of videos and being uncomfortable in a cafe when it's full and you're talking to a camera and then go and showcase some uh, cafes around the world hopefully
1: oh wonderful that's
2: my my idea I, I pitched it to a few people and they loved it so I thought I'll get that started so that's maybe more niche if from my perspective out of the two podcasts I've got
1: Oh,
0: I don't know. I don't know. There's a pretty broad coffee drinking community out there, and a pretty broad traveling community. Community, and I think there'd be a lot of overlap between the two.
2: Any combined? I can't see many combined.
0: Is that? Oh no, no. But I mean, in terms of like your potential audience. Oh yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah, of, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of there's going to be a lot of um, appetite for this kind of a, you know, this kind of content. So, no, no, I, I haven't seen anybody doing it yet. No, no I
2: didn't mm. do that. Because i would pitch the question to you when on your travels previously right how many times have you been, have you been for a coffee yeah. um, but you're a so you, you might write i don't write so i never journaled let's say i don't know if you have journaled previously like is there loads of calves that you just forgot really. about <laughs> okay so you might have calves or coffees that you loved and you just don't oh, i can't remember what it was i don't know where it was
0: yeah totally oh yeah totally yeah. oh my god i have to say when i think of coffee and traveling it's just Italy. Oh my oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. I don't even like you can go to a fast station in Italy and just have a coffee that just like <laughs> blows your mind. You yeah. know what do they do down there, but oh my god, it's amazing. Oh, I have to say, like coffee in France is you can find good. good ones, but yeah. it's not as yeah. Okay. It's a, you know, you could find a good you could certainly find a good coffee, but it's not like you know, you can also find a bad coffee, right? Yeah. Um whereas in Italy it's just oh.
2: I'm going to ask you a question actually later, mm. just keep this in mind, of the best place you had a coffee, right? So I'm going to ask you oh, that God. question later, God. so you can think about it because now. I
0: don't, because I don't journal, James, I don't remember <laughs> the name of the place.
2: A, con- a country or a city, it could be...
0: Okay, well I can't remember which city it was in. I yeah. remember what city it was
2: in, Cool. Yeah. And I asked the, another guy the same thing. Before I even finished, he cut me off and said, well, it's Verona. And he's like, yeah. Don't need to ask another question about it. He said, that's the best coffee in the world. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, fair enough.
0: Thing. i have not been to verona yeah right no fine yeah I'm adding it to the list
2: yeah yeah he's a he's a wine guy and he said yeah that was that good that I had it instead of wine it's like wow must be good okay, okay nice yeah there you go anyway those parts you lived in previously Mm. I've got a question here on the notes. Is maybe a favourite part in each. You listed some countries there that you've lived in.
0: Yeah, maybe pick two that you think look interesting.
2: Well, obviously I'm going to pick Oxford and the Cotswolds. Yes. Dream, yeah, so, dream uh, area.
0: So beautiful. Yes. Um, so we were lucky enough, after we li- after we left Sierra Leone, we moved to Oxford. Yeah. Um, because we were both at that point working for, um, I was writing for The Guardian, and Ollie, my husband, had a fellowship with King Tank in London. So we wanted to be, in the UK um, and my husband Ollie had lived in Oxford for a couple of years like before I knew him and so he was like oh you have to live there and it was just beautiful I mean as a place to live we had a tiny little house um, no car but we were taking you know taking a train into London sometimes for work and then we could take the bus and get out into the Cotswolds and just go on these beautiful long walks and finish with a sort of a nice late long lunch in a sort of a, you know 600 year old pub with a tree bring out of the roots, or anything <laughs> yeah. yeah. and and in Oxford we live very close to Port Meadow actually oh. which there's a painting the painting behind uh, behind you yeah. here is um, a painting of Port Meadow yeah. where we used to walk and actually I have lots of memories of when I was pregnant with our older daughter doing a lot of walking on, on Port Meadow mm-hmm. so um, yeah Oxford is always I think we have so many wonderful memories of. Um, living there and exploring the Cotswolds which are just you know for people who aren't familiar the Cotswolds sort of Oxford sort of backs onto the Cotswolds so it's a yeah beautiful beautiful part of the world that we really enjoyed.
2: Yeah awesome because my partner studied in Oxford and then lived there so I've been there for you once or twice so she knows it very well and all her friends were living there but for people who don't know the Cotswolds it's like this part of England where there's no big towns small little villages and towns and they've got a certain way of building their houses and it's like the idyllic English countryside village if you think that like a river run through it nice little walks probably horses on the road and kind of like closed off a little bit it's kind of that part of England sort of like southwest ish mm,
3: mm.
0: yeah like you know a couple of hours two and a half hours outside London yeah or so going west yeah um yeah going west yeah my brother-in-law uh and his family live in Cheltenham oh it's just sort of on that's the, pretty close on the other edge of it. so yeah, yeah. So, and, and actually my my parents in law recently moved from kind of from Surrey from suburban London yeah. out to Cheltenham to be close to suburban London family. So we go to Cheltenham now several times a year to visit family and um, and enjoy going on walks some day or two. So yeah, it's just an absolutely stunning part of the world. Um, you know the the countryside in England can be surprisingly, surprisingly sort of Beautiful. I mean, uh, quietly. I uh, was the word? like kind of quietly, very in movingly, sort of beautiful and unexpected ways, I find. Yep. And that's very true of the Cotswolds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
2: shamefully, I've not explored enough of it. Probably not like you for the US, right? I've just never really spent much time totally. in Cotswolds or Yorkshire or the Lake District or Scotland. Not really spent any time. It's criminal, really. But when you get older, you sort of realise, right? I think when you're young, you get out there and you can always go back, right? So I think that's the attitude. Yeah,
0: there's plenty of time. Yeah, plenty of
2: time, yeah. And another place on here that piques my interest because I know nothing about it, Sierra Leone, Takagama.
0: Yes, exactly. So um, Takagama, so when we were living in Sierra Leone, we lived in Freetown, which is the capital, which is right on the coast. Mm. And what's so fascinating and beautiful about Sierra Leone is that it has this lovely Atlantic coastline with kind of white sand beaches and palm trees. And then it back to these sort of rolling forested hills, like that come right down to the to the coast. So it's a very just sort of beautiful natural landscape. And Takugama is a chimpanzee sanctuary that's just outside, maybe like a thirty to forty minute drive outside of Freetown. So you can go up there, um, and they do really important work. Like Jane Goodall um, has visited, and I think she sort of advised them when they were set up, um,
1: and it's been running
0: for decades. I mean, it started even before the universe was born, started in the 90s and it, was, it was already going before the Civil War broke out. Yeah. They're doing fantastic work for chimps and you can go see the chimps You know, in a sort of visitor safe way, you know, that you're not like covering them. Yeah, they've yeah. done very well. They also have eco-lodges there, or like little kind of tree mm. houses that you can stay in. They're just really nice. And Freetown itself, because it's a bit lower, get a bit sort of hot and muggy and you know but if you go up into the hills you're up in the forest and you can stay in this like tree house lodge and listen to the chimps like hooting um from your while you're sitting on the little like
1: tree balcony
0: of your treehouse. house <laughs> it's wonderful so we would go up there you know just for sort of a weekend just to kind of escape the city of bit. it's a I, I recommend it to anybody who sort of mentions sierra leone to me and um yeah it's a fascinating place they're doing really important work and and it's a beautiful experience too. So, absolutely, Takugama Chimpanzee Sanctuary.
2: Awesome, Highly great tip. Okay, your life in the French Alps. I just yes. imagine you've got sensational views all the time, very quiet, lots of natural sounds, not too busy with pollution in terms of light or noise. Is that roughly what it is?
0: <laughs> yeah, and we're, we're especially where we are, because we live um, at the bottom of a very steep-sided valley. So yeah. it's very narrow, steep-sided valley. So. Um, it's dark out right now because it's, you know, in the evening, but if the light, you know, if it were daylight, I could look out my window, look at the river that's across the road from us, and then look up at, um, at a ridgeline that's like probably 1,500 meters above me, so 3,500, yeah. five thousand feet yeah. above me. Right there that already has snow on it, you know, and we're here in, in what, early October. So, um, yeah, it's a very dramatic landscape. And there are hiking trails just around us yeah. that turn into some cross-country sling trails in the winter. Um, but then, yeah, down, down the road is the village where, you know, the village kind of where our children are in school has about 3,000 people. But um, it's very quiet at this time of year, which when we're kind of between the summer tourist season mm. and the winter ski kind of season, but if you come in August, So if you come in February, or you come over Christmas, um, or even in July, um, it is not quiet at all. It's very full, very busy. We get a lot of... The the industry of this valley, where we live, um, is really tourism. Right. That's what most of our friends and neighbors work in the tourism industry when they're another. The trails across from us are very quiet at the moment, but in August... It's this not a steady stream right across from us, but there's a nature reserve just up the road mm. that gets um, about 400,000 visitors a year. So it, wow. uh, And the only way to access it is by driving past our house, so we get a lot of traffic on the road. So it's really, it's very rural and quiet sometimes, but mm. um, then it's also very busy at other times, which is been moving here four years ago. And you know living here and seeing this has made me, as a journalist, You know when we moved here, I wasn't really... You know, I had been working for the UN in Kenya, and I was getting back into journalism um, when we moved here. And I thought, what topic do I want to write about? And I got back into travel. I had done a bit of travel writing before, but not a ton. But I got back into it, and I thought, you know, seeing the tourism industry from this perspective as a resident of a place that's dependent on tourism, I thought, you know what, I need to understand this industry in a, in a more nuanced way mm-hmm. because um, it's really important in a lot of ways. Um, so, but yeah, that's our, our life here is, it's wonderful,
1: really.
2: Yeah, as on that point of the travel tourism industry as a person living somewhere where it gets a lot of it. I think, I, again, I talked about this with Erin on the podcast a few weeks ago, that places like Barcelona and Venice, Dubrovnik, you know, arguably you yourself in that sort of like tourism-based place, they never get to see their yeah. <laughs> town or city without tourists. Like, is that true anywhere? Maybe not, but I don't know. They must get a bit fed up
0: you know today it's it's a, it's saturday today right so the weekend mm. the weather hasn't been beautiful i went out for a walk just you know across the road just for dinner did not see a soul well the only person i saw was our neighbor who's a farmer who's out with his dog yeah so i would say it really varies in that you know in our valley what, what we learn to do and what everyone learns to do is to kind of just adjust yes yeah. to the clothes and we're all like i say we because i am as well like We're all grateful for the the people who come Mm. and you know I you know I say that even me because I don't work directly with you know I do work in the tourism industry to some extent as a travel journalist you know our neighbor on this side runs a shuttle service taking people to and from Geneva Airport and our neighbor on that side runs you know a cafe and her husband works for the ski company that runs the the ski mountain so um, and even the farmer who I bumped into in the summer, he and his wife run a little snack shop in the nature reserve, so they are, supplement their income by selling ice creams and oh, food right. to yeah. tourists, right? So, yeah. so we're all very grateful for the income you know, and the job opportunities that tourism provides and just for the life it brings to the village mm. and the sort of energy um, that it brings. But you know, you just learn, okay, I'm not gonna go up hike. I'll go for a jog whenever I want out in the hiking reserve this time of year but I don't go there at all between July fifteenth and But in a place like Barcelona or Venice, maybe it's harder when you have more of a steady stream of people year round. Yeah,
1: and it might be harder to kind of like find those quiet moments.
2: That comes into like over tourism, right? Which I think you would maybe talk about on your podcast as well. Well, this is by pre-COVID, right? So we can't really comment too much on post-COVID. But I'd imagine that some places are scared a little bit. Is it go back to normal? But it was before covid um thailand for example when i was there like i was part of it yeah you know, just over tourism bit of a tough subject
0: well yeah it is you know, and that's that's a subject that um because it's a tough subject i find it really fascinating and i'm very motivated to try to kind of pick it apart a little bit i guess mm. because i know that oh, god of course i've contributed to overcrowding at tourist sites in the past as a traveler i mean most of us have right
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: um but I also see the value of travel both for, um, you know, travelers themselves as well as here, you know, for our community.
1: Mm.
0: It's a fantastic, you know, people in our in our village, are, in our valley, are very excited about the Tourism Ministry. Oh, it's okay. really, very, people are very positive about it. I mean, because they all work in it, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And the local sort of planning committee and everything, they're all very actively thinking about how do we manage this? How do we plan for 30 years from now when the ski resorts not going to be like viable probably anymore because we're not so, so high here? Um, so it's really, you know, it's it's part of the fabric of the community. It's really interesting. And I think, and I remember um, on, on my podcast, actually, I interviewed um, a fantastic woman named Inga um, Pelsdodrup, if I, if I remembered her name <laughs> correctly. Then and um she's the former i believe she's the former director of visa iceland and oh. i took talk, talked to her about over tourism in iceland yes yeah. iceland became really well known for over tourism mm. and she was like you know that's really not fair actually or a lot of the sort of the outside descriptions of iceland she found were sort of overblown or it's like you're taking one specific problem at a specific site, you know, at a specific time of year, and you're sort of extrapolating to the whole country. Yeah. And actually, when we think about over-tourism, it is a very specific problem and that needs specific solutions. So just kind of saying, oh, over-tourism is a problem, we should stop going to Iceland, It's kind of defeats the purpose or sort of, you know, it doesn't lead to a good outcome for... Iceland because they still want tourists to come to Iceland or for the traveler who wants to go to Iceland you know Um, so I think taking over tourism and trying to sort of pick it apart a little bit and understand the nuances and the the real drivers and the real things that governments can do because a lot of things that governments can do um, to minimize that you know I think it's I think it's a fascinating really rich topic and that you know is why I have chosen to go into that a bit in Journalism.
2: Yeah, Iceland's an interesting one. Yeah, I think i a had a fair point that because you think the Blue Lagoon, for example, in Iceland that we all, a lot of us have been to, that maybe specifically that thing might be just too much, but it doesn't represent the rest of Iceland. Imagine if you got a jeep out and then drove around the, the ring road on the island and went to like some of the smaller villages, they probably don't see a tourist stay there. <laughs> so they'd say, well, I don't think yeah. there's a problem. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really good exactly. point there.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean it's a question, you know, you get you get problems with crowding when the supply of visitors exceeds the capacity of the infrastructure that's there to, to welcome them, right? Mm. So either you work to kind of dilute the visitors either by spreading them out longer over season or by kind of dispersing them out to other places. Mm. Or you say, Okay, fine, we're gonna have a big number of visitors here. How do we how do we channel them in a way that's gonna be more efficient mm. or less damaging? or how do we, you know, we need to build more toilets, that's usually a big thing. Um, you know, there are ways that governments can make it possible for a huge number of visitors to go to a place without, you know, maybe not without causing any damage, but with minimizing um, damage. I mean, you think of a place like Versailles, Palace oh, Versailles, yeah. which it's like, oh gosh, I don't have the figure to mind, but I want to say, like, north of five, six, seven million people a year, um, don't quote me on that, but they get a lot of people. Yeah. It's in the millions, right? Yeah. I have to look that up, and um, and they do it really well. Like they they funnel those people. They have um, a system for it, and this is you know really rich heritage, obviously like very old, rich heritage that these people are seeing, um, and people are able to have a, a a full experience of the place without doing any damage to the the heritage that's on display. Yeah. So I think you know picking apart over tourism and looking for these solutions is is something that is really helpful to do
2: yeah i think my barcelona example would be like Las ramblas the street everyone walks on it but then you know as a traveler yourself maybe you can just say do you know what i'm sure it's great but let's just take a little few different turns on the side streets and see somewhere else that could help um maybe the people who live on Las ramblas like not feel overwhelmed but maybe we can do limits on our own side to maybe mitigate those, like, I won't say disasters, but like the, that over tourism of like one specific
1: area.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, Les Rambles, I think is, you know, that's um, a really interesting example that you raised because, you know, you have issues with overcrowding at some sites, but you also have issues in cities, especially in European cities, of the kind of the hollowing out of the city center. And yes yep. the mystification of the city center and um and you see that in Les you know, less they've you know, been working on policies to sort of counter that in places like, you know, Amsterdam. Mm. There are things again, I have to say like I really the more I learn about this topic and the more I sort of write about this topic, the more that I see the possibility for governments to make really to take really concrete steps to to stop this kind of thing from happening. Mm. Because you know, it's when it's when the sort of the Shops, the kind of the mix of shops start to change in a place like Las Ramblas, so there um, you know tourists come shops out, you know, kind of push out the the shops that used to serve the residents. Like with strict planning regulations, you can prevent that from happening. Yeah, your local government, right? and that's what Amsterdam has. Amsterdam has done that recently, but um, you know I think cities in general are still kind of playing catch up a little bit, are trying to understand the dynamics at play and how they can regulate. Um, regulate around them to minimize the negative impacts of, um, you know, a growing tourism industry in the city.
2: Mm, Okay. And are these types of subjects, are these sort of the stuff that you like to get stuck into for your travel writing and journalism?
0: Exactly, exactly, yes. I think, um, and it really does stem from living in this place that's, you know, that has a very active tourist industry. that is really important for the local economy. And I just think, you know, it's so important that we get this right. I think travel and tourism is so important um, for us as individuals. Like I know how much travel has changed my life and made me a more compassionate and empathetic and, you know, knowledgeable person. Yeah. I may mean, still have a long way to go, but like it's helped. Um, and I see, you know, and how it can support economies. It can, you know, it can provide a lot of funding for conservation You know, it can help sort of provide incentives for the preservation of cultural heritage, this kind of thing. But it's all in the how, isn't it? It's all in the how it's regulated, it's all in how it's done. And um and I don't think it's fair to put too much of a burden on the individual traveler. I mean really I don't. There's there are certain things, you know, obviously how we behave when we're visitors is hugely important. Um so there are a lot of you know, it's it's important that we think carefully about our choices. But these big, you know, the kind of the bigger picture questions. I think you know a lot of the a lot of the responsibility falls on the shoulders of the local authorities and the governments yeah. to kind of step up and listen to the residents and, and make sometimes uncomfortable or difficult decisions to regulate something that wasn't regulated before. Um, so yeah, all of this stuff um, I explore it in my in my writing for the New York Times, you know, in the podcast, and I'm also actually. Writing a book about the tourism industry that's going to be published in twenty twenty four. So I still a okay. ways off. Yeah, I'm in the process of um, researching and writing it now. So I'm kind of going, and it's all on these kind of issues uh, over tourism, but also the importance of travel. So it's um, yeah, it's in the works, but I'm enjoying it. That's for sure. Yeah,
2: that's an exciting project for the book.
0: Yes, exciting, daunting,
3: yeah. Um, yeah, you daunting know,
0: yeah. sometimes I go from being like pinching myself to being like, Christ, what have I done? You know. <laughs> I like I've signed a contract to, to deliver a manuscript. Um, so it like it has to happen now or else I have to pay back some money. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: That's what you call pressure.
1: <laughs>
0: That's what you call
2: pressure.
1: Yeah.
0: But, you know, um, headlines thing. and, and contracts. Um, contract sort of clauses can be incredibly motivating. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah
1: so uh
0: um, yeah. <laughs> so that, that's kind of where I am now. But I'm still um yeah, I'm still kinda of in the early stages of it. So yeah. We'll, we'll see how
1: it goes.
2: Awesome. Okay. And on your research and your previous travels, I've got a question here which is quite a deep question, but I was gonna save it for the end, but I'll do it now because I've got another type of question for it. The purpose of travel. What's your oh, thoughts wow. on that?
0: Yeah. Oh man, I mean so yeah I think you know, the purpose of travel a like helping us make connections with people and cultures that are that we're unfamiliar with mm. i mean i think you know um i had a this american of travel guru rick steves on my podcast and he talks about this like so beautifully and how um you know the the problems that we're going to encounter as a species in the years ahead and decades ahead are going to be you know cross borders yes. In right, climate change and pandemics and what we need to learn to work together and understand each other and not be scared of each other and um you know by traveling to other countries and getting to know other people and seeing their humanity and understanding their perspective and what they're going through um you know that could just give us as a, as a species so much more love for our brothers and sisters and um and capacity to cooperate yeah yeah yeah. Which is just you know, something that we're all going to be able to um, need to be able to do. Obviously, okay, so yeah, I'm getting all kind of woo-woo here. Sorry, <laughs> but And um, no, no. also, so, media, so making human connections, which is not always easy to do when you travel. But I think if you can do that when you travel, that's like, you know, that's really top-bar sort of stuff. But also just making us uncomfortable and getting us out of our comfort zones, yeah. and um, and helping us to understand ourselves and our place in the world. Um, and a sort of a enhanced perspective, I guess, because yeah, you learn more about yourself by, and, and where you're from and in your background by drawing yourself into different environments. Yeah. I think it's, it's so good for, for all of us really to, um, to throw ourselves into, into different cultures.
2: Yeah. could not agree more. I booked a trip to Greece this week because, um, I was figuring out where to go December for Christmas. I thought I'll go home for Christmas, but I'll go to Greece two weeks. On my mind is like, well, I've got, I've got the coffee and travel podcast. That's you know, I've got to go to find some random calves, That's an easy one. But the next question is like, well, can I find some local people who would be comfortable speaking on an English speaking podcast and just talk about that area, what they feel like their town or city they're in is, is doing with maybe pandemic or travel, maybe learn a bit about the culture. But I want to go and speak to someone there who can tell us about that island and the best places to see on an island and what they think of the world and, you know, just learn a bit about their culture. So like, why wouldn't you want to learn and see different cultures?
0: Exactly. Oh, well, that sounds, that sounds fascinating. How long are you planning to stay?
2: Well, I've got two weeks in Greece, but yeah.
0: Well, I look forward to whatever content might come out of that trip. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Hopefully get some good coffees for you to go and check out. And also hopefully interview some local people. Let's, let's see where that goes.
1: Fantastic. Yeah.
2: you got a very interesting comment here, actually. Being a traveller versus being an immigrant, open-minded and more tolerant.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, um, I was struck in listening to your conversation with Dave Seminara. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. It was a conversation where you were talking about some people who enjoy travelling but don't enjoy living overseas. Yes. And other people who enjoy living overseas but don't enjoy travelling mm. and sort of what is the balance for you. And I was kind of thinking about that and I was like, yeah, I'm somebody who is, I enjoy travelling for sure. Um but I also just enjoy making my home outside of my home country and actually like kind of the constant moving you know just gets kind of tiring after a while mm. but by making my home in a place that's other than my my home country you kind of get that like lower level dose of what I find so fascinating about travel that kind of being on a constant constantly at the bottom of the steep learning curve you get that sort of built into your every day yeah um And, uh, so yeah, I think, um, and people talk about these terms like expat versus immigrant. Yeah. And I, I felt like different versions when we lived in Nairobi and we were with the UN and we were diplomatic status and in the little UN bubble there, I felt like an expat. Yeah. But here in France, like as a mother attending the, you know, the PTA meetings in French and Wow. I'm struggling to understand all the different things that are going on and like I feel like an immigrant mother who's like you know yeah. are trying to navigate the bureaucracy you know in a different language like my you know my French is good but it's just you know navigating life in another country um, I feel like yeah you know like immigrants all over the world really. like, yeah I don't know got, I'm not sure where, where I'm going with this but um, you know, I think living living abroad and traveling deliver similar benefits that may be a different different
2: scales yeah because that part of dave's book really piques my interest i i know you've not read the book yet and i'm for anyone mm. listening to read the book because he does go over the subjects maybe as an avid traveler you don't want to hear or read about and that is people who hate travel and there's different niches yeah. between the, the two three different terms we just mentioned and i was like asking myself all these questions <laughs> and i think i said on dave's podcast that i was six months traveling six months off uh, on reflection, I think I'm actually more 60% traveling, 40% home.
0: Oh really? That's what that's your sort of average.
2: That's what I'd like to do in a perfect, perfect world. Like to do. That's not realistic cuz it's all based on like economic status, right? Like have not got any money, no well, I got to stay and I. I actually realized in Vancouver that the people who visit say it's an amazing place. It's unbelievable it is. The nature's incredible, the city's big, there's lots going on. But it doesn't matter for me. It could be where you are in France in the village in the mountains or it could be in the pool or it could be in Japan. Anywhere, I think the feeling for me would be the same. So it doesn't matter where I'm based. Um, it's that urge to go off again. So I guess I don't have a strong sense of feeling to home.
0: Oh, interesting, interesting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's maybe one thing that a lot of us kind of wandering nomads
1: have in common
0: is that sort of. I mean, where I grew up and where my parents still live, it certainly feels like a base for me in some ways. But it feels yeah. like my parents' home. It, it's not my home.
2: Yes. Anymore
0: of makes kind of breaks my heart a little bit to say that out loud, but it's, you know, I enjoy going there. But yeah, it's, so, you know, I guess maybe people who are have this sort of wanderlust and they're constantly moving around, living and traveling in different countries, you know, it's a situation where you don't really feel fully at home in any place.
2: No, it's quite frustrating, actually, sometimes.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, I think about that for our children as well, who are growing up with Two passports, you know, American and British and living in a third country. Yeah. Um, you know, so when someone asks, like, you know, when our daughters are in their thirties and someone asks them, So where are you from? What are they gonna say?
1: Well Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Time will tell. (laughs) 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 So but how you know, but then how important is that? I mean that's another question.
1: Well yeah. Um
0: how important is that so sense of place? And I think it really varies from person to person. Yeah. Um, because I think for me, because now I'm moving around with my, my sort of nuclear family, like that's home really. And we might move yeah. again, but it's within the context of that. So
2: yeah, that's an interesting comment. Actually, is it four or five of you? It's four.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Four. Well, plus the cat, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, very <laughs> important. I love cats. Don't get me wrong. But let's <laughs> say five. <laughs> yeah. You five can go anywhere in terms of let's talk about like materialistic, like a building, like where you are now. Hmm. And that's your home for now, but as long as you five are together, anywhere can be home. I guess we always think home of the place. Maybe that is a, that maybe that is a thing as well for some people, but for some people, like you say, it's maybe for you it's uh, the nucleus is together. So you could go to Japan tomorrow and as long as you are together, that's yes. still home. Ah, totally. Interesting thought totally, of that I never thought about that. Yeah,
0: yeah. 100%, yeah. It's like our home travels with us. We're like a little turtle, you know, you can climb into the shell. Um and, uh, and actually, I remember when we were living in Sierra Leone, so this is before we had kids, probably, yeah, before before we were married, mm. we got to know a U.S. Embassy couple who were probably in their 50s, um, who had lived all over the place over the years. It was like yeah. two Foreign Service officers who were married to each other oh. you know, every two or three years, right? And they had kids who were 18 and 20, um, living and you know, they were studying in the U.S. at that point. And I remember talking to the woman who was kind of offering some sort of like older sister kind of advice sort of thing, and she was like, what it does if you have a family with this kind of like roaming situation, it makes you so, you know, tight, so close-knit as a family. Like you really learn to rely on each other Yeah. um, because you are all you have when you move to a new place. Um, So she said that their two children were, were so close in a way that she was never... That close with her own siblings and her husband wasn't close with that. Got it. it wasn't that close with the siblings very happy because they had that sort of nucleus. So that's what I'm hoping. At least you know we're not providing our daughters. I mean, we're going to stay in France here for a while, but you know, at least home will be, you know, with with one dad, and five of us with the cat together. Um, <laughs> that that's home, even if the sort of the physical environment around us might be you know, might be changing. But I mean, the other thing that I think about is that the number of people who fit in the category, I feel like it's just getting bigger and bigger. Mm. And I do feel like, you know, when our children are older, you know, I hope we'll be able to find a nice community of people who have similar experiences that yes. they can sort of connect with, yeah. you know, people who have two passports and grow up in a third country or, you know, third culture kids, what um, So that even within that sort of like ungrounded maybe world, there is a community of people who can find each other and be each other's home. So that's my, that's my hope.
2: Yeah, because that's an interesting point with kids, right? A different perspective because I guess you've got to think about their growing up part where do they have a community of friends or people that are kind of peers, right? Alongside them, not just their, their parents. That would probably pose a different question about moving around as much. But like that couple you said about in the foreign service, they probably don't have a choice with work properly.
0: Yeah, exactly. It you know, just comes with the territory, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we're aware that when our kids are, I mean, our kids are six and eight now, so still on the young side, but by the time they're teenagers, Yes. I'm certainly aware that, like, that's that's really when it's important to kind of, you know, settle down and, you know, see them through high school and... Yeah. Um, especially with, yeah, the social life. It, that's it's just, you know, you don't want to be jumping around too much, but... Yeah, we'll, we'll cross
2: that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and weirdly because my parents were not travellers, and still arguably aren't. Even though my mum's come to Athens with me for three or four days uh, in December, nice. um, I had a big group base of friends that a lot of them are still there. So that's quite lucky in the sense that I know I've got some close friends, even though I don't live there. That's lucky in that sense. It can make you lazy sometimes. You don't feel you have to make friends, so you need to get out of that mode. But at least they're there. So and I can go back home to where I grew up and still have some friends to talk about a little stuff that's not travel because they're not interested in it. <laughs> and just kind of joke around a bit more, you know? Um, I guess a lot of people who maybe traveled a lot when they're younger don't have that firm base of friends, especially if they didn't get on with people in their school.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that is something that we're aware of is finding sort of groups of children who our kids get along well with, who can be constant throughout their childhood. Um, and really it's the, the children of, our old friends who we see regularly, um, and making a point to kind of keep those connections up. Or even, you know, we have um, some of our kids' friends here moved away, and so we're making you know a point to kind of help keep them in touch and yeah. to show them that actually, you know, you can, can still be friends. Um, and so that when they, you know, so when they're in their 30s or whatever, they will have people they know who, you know, it's a three or five or six or whatever, because yeah. I think, yeah, that's a really important you know, it can be a very grounding, again, force for, for us as human beings, knowing people who've known us for that long.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Yeah, that's quite an interesting topic, that. So with Dave, I just asked a few questions about that, because this book is quite interesting on that. He said he made a point to discover the other side, if you like. And I don't think you called it the dark side, but the other side of travel where people hate it. Yeah, yeah I mean,
0: I heard, something, you know, like, there are people in my family Who are really not travelers. Um, And I can appreciate that it's just like, it can be overstimulating. Not to say that they like necessarily hate travel, but it's just not something that they're drawn to. And it can be sort of overstimulating in a way that's unpleasant, I think. Um, So yeah, it's, you know, everybody's wired differently, I guess.
2: Yeah, I think my parents are like that. That's quite interesting. I told my dad I was going to Greece and he was like, oh, why going there for? (laughs) And he said a few other things as well, but. Just not interested. I said, oh, "I thought you'd be interested in Greece." He's like, "No, UK only. Maybe Austria." Hasn't got a passport, so can't go anyway. Just not interested. There you go. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Isn't it? There we go. Going <laughs> to talk a bit about your travel journalism and then onto your podcast. I might combine the two because they're quite fairly similar, I'd say. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: I think you said you had no formal training to be a journalist.
0: None whatsoever. <laughs>
2: So did you start a blog? Like how did you get into it? Like in terms of not having any formal training, maybe writing as a hobby to get paid?
0: I'd always like I felt like I had a knack for writing mm. like in school and stuff. But it was something that I enjoyed and that I felt like came fairly naturally to me as opposed to like chemistry or something. <laughs> yeah. Um which yeah, not so much. Um so I kind of I felt like I sort of had it in me, you know, this yeah, this kind of like impulse and I enjoyed writing things and um and yeah so then when I um gosh my first job at a graduate school was an editor as an editor at this think tank and um so that was a job where I had to write regularly and on short deadlines and yeah. for a public audience because I was writing something that was written on people and I loved that I just really that's where I really learned it was in that job because you know my my original supervisor and then colleagues who really helped me learn how to structure a news story but also to be honest I mean terms a rocket science like you know you read other stories you learn by reading other people's work right mm-hmm. like you see what they're doing how to structure it and, you know what voices they're bringing into the story you learn by reading and you learn by working with editors so i learned in that job um, and by having um and but yeah learning by doing really and then from that job you know we moved to Sierra Leone and i started pitching news stories and i started a blog because I didn't have any clips with my name on them. It had all been anonymous at the, the think tank.
2: Oh, okay. So,
0: um, yeah, so I just had a few, like, blog posts with my name on them that I could sort of, like, string paragraphs together in a way that sounded nice. And that helped me land, you know, my first, um, my first paid writing gigs. And then, basically, if you can sort of deliver and give an editor something they're happy with and deliver it on time and the right word count and basically just, like, be a generally and polite person, <laughs> you know, which goes a long way in life.
3: Yeah, it does.
0: Then um, you're probably going to get more, you're probably going to get more work. So that's what happened to me then. And then one outlet, you know, once you get some clips there, you can start pushing the, sort of the next one up the rung. Yeah. The next one up the rung, the next one up the rung, and then, you know, that's how I ended up right in your time. Okay.
1: So I, it was really learning by,
0: learning by doing. Um, and I thought about, I applied to journalism school. I applied to Columbia, actually. I got into Columbia and decided not to go. Oh,
1: okay. Because
0: <laughs> I was already doing it. At that point, I was already working as a journalist. Yeah, yeah,
1: of course. And yeah, my yeah.
0: God, it's expensive. And we were living in Sierra Leone. I applied to, because we didn't know where we were going after Sierra Leone. Right? Yeah. And I was like, well, heck. And Ollie was like, sure, like we could go to New York for a while, whatever. So I applied, I got in. But it was like, oh my God, it's so expensive. And it was like, I'm already writing for The Guardian without a master's degree in journalism. Why pay, like, through the nose to, you know... So I was like, "Thanks, for no thanks. I'm just gonna go keep writing for the Guardian." <laughs> yes, I
3: did.
0: <laughs> anyway, it's, it's a great school. I'm sure. I'm sure. Do journalism school? I think you know. From what I hear, of course, it gives you great contacts. Yeah. And of course, you learn very important things in journalism school. Um, I'm not to not here to sort of like discredit it or or all you know, but I know very successful journalists who have not gone to journalism school as well. Yeah, of course. Um, so. But yeah, I just yeah learn by learn by doing really.
2: And who have you written for so far? You mentioned the Guardian.
0: Yeah, so um, the Guardian and the Washington Post. And um, these days, you know, the New York Times is my main um, outlet that I write for. Yeah. I also have written for a Far Magazine, which is a travel magazine based in San Francisco. Um, uh, I had a piece for Outside, the BBC. But yeah, to be honest, I kind of stopped pitching sort of too far field recently. I've got. Between the podcast and writing the book and um, in my New York Times, that's kind of all I can can, can manage it, you know. So I've stopped stopped pitching
3: around,
2: (laughs) Got a question about the editor. When you give your writing on time in the word count Mm. and they've probably got obviously a subject about it, do they also read it to make sure it looks good? Do they trust you and say, yep, got that piece of work, I'll put it in the paper or the magazine? Online, and that's it, or do they actually read through it themselves and critique it?
0: Okay, yeah, yes, they read through it, yeah, and they critique it. And depending on the outlet, sometimes the, the level of editing at the New York Times is very high, like, you know, they have high standards, and they, um, the one. I mean, quite often it'll be, Oh, could you bring in this voice? Could you bring in this perspective? You know, yeah. I think this kind of voice is missing this piece, can you go get it? You know, um, that, or it'll be sort of they uh, they always shrink it they always just like do liposuction on it it's amazing it makes it so much better it's like they don't take out any content but suddenly like 200 words have just oh wow
2: the yeah yeah.
0: yeah yeah and you're like oh wow magician <laughs> yeah. um, so it's uh so yeah they do it definitely it's a back and forth with the editor and sometimes depending on the story and you know how easily it came to you or whatever um, sometimes it's more work than, sometimes it's, it's very minimal that's rare I would say um, usually it's one or two back and forths and then it's done. But the more you work with an editor, the more you know each other, and the sort of the smoother uh, that process becomes. But no, that I do want to. Say, working with editors is one of the great joys of writing for me, because they're like your writing coaches, yeah. your writing yeah. teachers, and um, and my writing is so much better. Thank <laughs> you. Because your your editors who are like slaving away, they work so hard and they don't get any credit. You know their names, well unless like it's top editor. But like the editors, the, the sort of workaday editors, like, you know, their names aren't out. It's, it's just my name on the piece in the end, right? Yeah, fair they've point. Done, they've spent a lot of time on it too, so I appreciate my editors hugely, for sure.
2: Nice. And for travel writing, is there a particular angle that you go for for your writing? Or that piques your interest?
0: Yeah, interesting. I mean, so I started off doing um, like 36 hours pieces of the New York Times, like 36 hours in. Neva, 36 hours, oh, and okay. Oxford actually. I think yeah. has. Um, so I started that, but then that kind of evolved into these days. I don't do really kind of quote unquote sort of like travel features. Um, I do sort of news stories about places. So I'm looking to dive into the kind of topics that we we're talking about before about yeah. managing the sort of social and environmental and economic impacts of travel. Also, I did a story over the summer that was interesting looking at how. You know, these heat waves in europe we had over the summer how kind of travelers are responding to that and how the travel industry is yes. responding to that and so how climate change is ultimately you know probably starting to affect um the way we you know, visit europe as tourists mm. so that was interesting another kind of news news story that was really interesting to um
1: report and, and write that one
0: so yeah i think taking it sort of before um you know when i was writing for the guardian and and i was doing travel stories for The Washington Post, but for The Guardian it was all news and focusing on economic development stuff, which is what I had done at the Think Tank, I worked at Geneva. Yeah. So I feel like I'm kind of taking that lens to the travel world at this point in my career, which I find um, really interesting.
2: Okay, interesting. And you've got some, a few assignments here that have piqued your interest or you have found interesting. And there's one actually here, I don't know, it's starting to creep up, Airbnb slash Barcelona. I guess you've looked into Airbnb. now come from someone who just books airbnbs just willy nilly not all the time just if i feel like i'm going there and i want one i'll just book one but I've, i have no perspective on how that impacts the local tourism or tourism as a whole so what did you find that was interesting in that story
0: yeah yeah that's fascinating well first of all i have a podcast episode for you
2: yeah <laughs> yes i've downloaded it, I did, I've, downloaded it. The, I've got it the, yeah yes, It next. came
0: out of and it really emerged from this story that i did it was um Last summer, like summer of 2021, I went to Barcelona because the city of Barcelona, like the local government has been really in a kind of battle, and that's not an exaggeration to use that word, um, with Airbnb. I mean, it's a very complicated situation. Mm. You know, tourism in Barcelona has gotten, like, first of all, the local leadership of Barcelona since the Olympics in 1982 were going gangbusters on tourism, right? Like they, the local authorities were doing all they could to attract tourists. This is gonna be like the new economy. Yeah right so then what happened like that worked right and then they ended up with more tourists you know and then the regulations kind of weren't keeping up and then airbnb came out of nowhere and just as in so many other cities you know council kind of got caught on the back foot and wasn't regulating um airbnb and so it kind of got um, really big and um and people started blaming it i think it was a little bit you know it's easy to kind of scapegoat it maybe i think it was part of the problem that's really not the entire problem okay um and so in Barcelona but you know again I mean I would say so basically now they've tried to come up with regulations and uh, to limit the impact basically they were just saying that too many people were renting out their homes on Airbnb so, and that they was taking residential places off of the you know pretend, potential residential yeah. properties out of the housing market which yeah. is driving up that yeah you know. right so they were trying to regulate it and Airbnb was trying to kind of continue to work there and they're kind of the things seem you know, a little bit a little bit messy. But um they're finding they're finding the way forward. They're working to I think I have sort followed this story more than a year ago. So um but you know I think Airbnb is you know I've used Airbnb certainly. Yeah. Um you know people in my family make a, you know a significant part of their income by renting
3: out for their home on Airbnb. Um
0: I think it's just important as travelers to make sure that when we're going to a place and book, booking an airbnb that it is in line with the local regulations um right like mm. and, and in most cases it's going to be true but i think it's it's worth like if you're going to paris and say an airbnb paris has very strict rules on on airbnb you know a quick google will reveal that actually on the airbnb website you should be able to find that even okay. um, And, you know, making sure that you're staying with a place that's registered, you know, that has a license, just making sure that the Airbnb or VRBO or whatever you're staying in is operating within the bounds of the local, um, you know, the local laws that are regulating it, I think is, um, you know, that. That's what you know. What a good traveler can do, and then, um, and then the rest, you know, you sort of is up to the, the local governments to find out the best, you know, what those laws, those laws want to be in the first place. So yeah, especially in Europe, it's certainly on a lot of people's radars.
2: Right.
0: It would be interesting to see how it, how it evolves in the future.
2: Yeah, it's, int- it's a problem here actually in Vancouver because the prices of houses are so oh, really? expensive. Yeah. So a lot of people either rent their apartment, like in the basement. Airbnb, which is fine because it's their house and they can do what they want. But the problem is, I guess, the people who actually own a house and don't live there and just rent it out. And it kind of stumps the market, right? I guess I can see where that's a problem. So if I booked an Airbnb, I want to know that it's actually someone local who actually lives there and doesn't just rent it out and live somewhere else, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, yeah, if you're actually staying at someone's home, who you know, they're going on vacation for two or three weeks and renting out their place while you're there, you know, that's great. Everybody wins. Um, But I have to say, like, we as a family um, used Airbnb a lot, especially when our kids were tiny, like babies and toddlers, and you just really need the space. Um, But now that they're a little bit older, you don't need to sort of go back for a nap in the middle of the day or have, like, carry cot or whatever it is. Like, um, we're just... We're using hotels a lot more and enjoying it and um, just kind of getting back into that kind of experience. But, yeah, no, it's... um, i'd say yeah there's certainly no kind of blank answer for Airbnb question anywhere it's it's a pretty nuanced issue based on the place that you're going um and you know the rules the rules are placed there but yeah this in this episode um on my podcast i interviewed this guy named um, daniel Gutentag, who is a professor in south carolina um, and he like so much of his research has been on the effects of airbnb oh wow and he's not pro and he's not um you know anti-airbnb okay not pro airbnb he really like has done a lot of studies looking at the impact and he has some great advice on you know what we should keep in mind as travelers so i interviewed him on my my podcast check out that episode and maybe you can
2: cool i'll link i'll link give it you some,
0: give you some answers but he's a great guy if you want to have him on your podcast oh yeah happy to give you
3: email <laughs> yeah.
2: there's a few people on your podcast i want to get some contact details of so i'll oh, do, I'll do sure. it after yeah, the yeah. after the show Um, there's some interesting guests on there that that look really interesting. That's good to know. I'll link the Airbnb, uh, show in this episode because I want to check out as well. I've got it lined up. I'm intrigued by that. The problem with Airbnb is to finalize on this is I looked for Greece, for example. I was like, right, Athens, do I stay in a hostel? Do I go hotel? Airbnb? I looked at all Hostels are just too expensive. I'm like, why are hostels becoming more expensive than Airbnb's? Like this this shouldn't be a thing because when I traveled 10 years ago probably backpacking obviously Airbnb I, I don't know if they are around 10 years ago but hostels were. were the savior of budget because it's like oh cheap it's a dorm room probably but at least it's cheap yeah, even yeah. dorm rooms now like well if I pay a little bit more i get a whole apartment
0: yeah I, it yeah, I mean it's like you know, there's yeah. a reason that Airbnb has grown
1: yeah yeah as
0: yeah. much and as quickly as it has right it like it really Serves a, you know, it provides a, a service that a lot of people are looking for. Yep. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, check out the episode. For you.
2: Lovely. Okay. Awesome. And uh, just to quickly finalize on your travel writing before we delve into podcast, just a bit of advice. Maybe someone wants to be a writer. Um, that's not obviously don't go to journalism school because you didn't do it. But like, other than that,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you go to journalism school, then it'll be much more straightforward. Okay. Than people yeah. who can advise you on this. No, I'd say, like, go to journalism school if um, if you're less kind of, um, I don't know, schizophrenic than I am, and you know <laughs> what you want to do And you're, you know, I, it took me until age, what, 26, 27 to figure it out. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, um, just get your name out there on written stuff, even if it's, like, starting your own blog. Okay. And, um, and then start pitching. And you can do it as a sort of a side, as a little hobby, like, whatever job you have you know, you can you can do this on the side and mm. see how it goes and um and pick you know, pick it up you pitch book reviews. Um a lot of times when you're first starting out, people might say, Okay, write it on spec, which means like you have to go ahead and write the whole thing and then we'll read it and then decide if we're gonna take it or not. It's oh, like okay. I do that a bit yeah, like on speculation sort of it's you know, it's not the nicest sort of like tactic they use but it's you know that's how i got my first story in the Washington Post, for example right um which was a trap story yeah. um, about nicole oh um, okay. that was a fun one to do yeah but um so yeah be willing to do stuff on spec and just kind of yeah practice your writing do your do your research so you know, find the outlets you know google the names of the people writing for the outlets you like to see if they're on staff or if they're freelancers um, and pitch the places that you see are taking stuff from freelancers um, and Google stalking the editors, um, like finding the editor's email addresses, so many of them are findable. Yeah. Um, and, just you know, the pitch, your pitch rate at the beginning, especially, is going to be terrible. Yeah, of course. Most people aren't even yeah. Fond. But just keep at it and, um, yeah, yeah, Get, put yourself out there.
2: Cool. Great advice. Last question i got here in the notes is, where do you see the travel writing space currently? Interesting. You said readers have shifting expectations. Is that just based on?
3: Yeah. Like, can
2: people read books anymore? Is that you know,
3: twenty-second <laughs> clips
2: is no,
0: what they want? I think if my sort of barometer for this is the comment section um, on travel stories in New right. York Times because I don't always like read them, but sometimes it's you can kind of sort of peek, you know, have a have a look, and and um, if you compare like comments on travel stories from before the pandemic with now. You see that people have a very different Mm. expectation, and editors are have woken up to this, and they're assigning stories differently. So, for instance, you know, before I would say five or six years ago, it it was much easier to get an assignment as a travel writer, where like you're going to plop into a place for five or six days, have an experience, and write something about it. Um, Now, I think readers are becoming slightly. I don't know, maybe there's less appetite for that among readers, but also the people who live in that place are are kind of speaking out on Twitter or in the comment section saying that writer who flew in for, you know, however many days um, didn't get it right. This isn't an accurate representation of my home. Thank you very much. So editors are looking to hire writers who live in those places more and more. And I think that's that's a shift in travel writing um, that I would say has been going on for a little while now and that has you know certainly from the perspective of the travel section in your time but it seems to me to be um, something that's really sticking um and uh so i think that's i think that's interesting and i think that leads to more authentic types of travel travel writing and travel storytelling um and yeah i'm also seeing more more stories like looking at the sort of the impacts of, of yeah. travel than we would have gotten certainly like five or ten years ago um, so I think it's it's an interesting interesting moment for travel writing as we kind of come out of the pandemic and I think people are thinking about travel in a setting more, like we're not, we realise that we had taken it for granted before and we're not sort of taking it for granted now, so I think we're all looking at it with slightly different eyes. So, um, yeah, no, I think it's an interesting time to be in the travel writing space.
2: Side question. Do you, someone like the Washington Post, for example, or New York Times? Do they have a podcast or audio section of their business? Oh,
0: um, I don't know about the Washington Post because I haven't been following them so much recently. Yeah. New York Times has their own, they have their own podcast. Um, like they have, gosh, I don't know how many, but they have their own sort of like suite of podcasts um, that they offer through the daily is by far the most popular one, I think, right? Um, but they also have kind of subject-specific podcasts, you know, um, Produced by the New York Times,
1: yeah.
0: and then they have, they're offering sometimes kind of, I think they're sort of rolling this out gradually, and I just know this because I'm, like, I'm not like in meetings, I'm just like, you know, observing the paper from a distance like everyone else, um, but you can sort of listen to stories, they're, they're offering more sort of like audio versions of stories yeah. now, I think that's that's not, um, certainly not across the board, but, but it seems like it's something that they're, um, they're doing more of, which I think is interesting. But yeah, they've got some, some
2: podcast Yeah, because I think it's interesting that, well, okay, let's say readers want to hear or read about local people. Well, why wouldn't these outlets hmm. have, specifically for their travel section, like a podcaster who works for New York Times or Guardian or whatever, and they go around just podcasting someone who is local and wants to tell the story about the place or whatever it is? Like, why is that not a thing? Yeah,
0: because <laughs> you haven't pitched it to them yet, James. I've
2: pitched it to a few people and they like the idea. <laughs> <laughs> like, not... not um... <laughs> Not like outlets. Just a few. A CEO last week I interviewed loved it, and like, yeah. Why wouldn't they have that? I'm like, but the options are endless.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think you know, all sorts of outlets are looking for different ways, you know, to sort of do their storytelling. Hmm. And I think a travel a travel show that goes into places yes. and that that does that, you know, showcasing local voices and painting a sort of an evocative scene through you know the audio yep. landscape or whatever. Um, could be a really rich addition to, you know, a paper, a magazine's travel, travel content. Actually, a farm magazine, um, that which is based in San Francisco that I mentioned earlier. I've done, um, you know, written work for them. Yeah. I've also hosted a podcast for them. They have two different podcasts. Um, and I'm working, actually, on a second podcast for them at the moment about um, Kerala. Like, it's um, a state in South India. India that I visited, um, yeah, about a month ago. Yeah. Um, so I was there as part of research for my book, but I was also collecting audio and, mm. and working out to produce this um, podcast episode for them. So yeah, there's certainly a print outlet that is is kind of going hard in the in the podcast space. So interesting. Yeah, one one to watch there. But um, yeah, maybe the maybe the big sort of you know the bigger guys will come around eventually.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't we appeal to to see your audio audience as well as your readers. Sorry, who listen? Yeah. Who read your articles, right? It's a different sphere that or different angle or stuff that they could add where more listeners might come in and, I don't know, log into a website or whatever and create accounts and, you know, more business and stuff. Mm. I think it's the same for, like, travel tour companies. Like, I'm, I always think the original pitch was actually for tour companies. Like, well, why doesn't these established tour companies, I don't know, Geo Ventures, for example, do they have an audio part of their business where someone goes around, maybe interviews like a tour guide that they've got on their books or maybe someone who's been on a trip or someone who's in the business side? Like, why don't you have that? So this is getting an idea of what's coming up, what's happening in the company, like, I don't know. That's just kind of where the pitch came from.
1: Mm, cool, I like the idea. Yeah, I'm about to start doing that.
2: I? Yeah, I keep talking about it. I need to start getting on with it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, your podcast, The Better Travel Podcast, what is a few lines to say, what are you trying to do with your podcast? What's the premise?
0: Yeah, so it's essentially taking my kind of journalistic lens to you know travel and tourism. With the goal, you know, of helping listeners understand this industry in a more nuanced way, Mm -hmm. Um, and also to highlight to them people who are doing really interesting and you know positive things in the industry, whether they're entrepreneurs or activists or writers um, or people even in government who are you know kind of taking a bold um, or making bold moves, you know, things that are like that are interesting and maybe worth replicating in other parts of the world. I want to sort of Put the spotlight on them mm-hmm. and have them on the show and introduce them to my listeners, and um, yeah, hope just to sort of spread some, some good in the world, really. Um, but yeah, it's all with this sort of premise of I think travel is so important yeah. um, for for so many of us, but it's really important that we do it in the right way. And in order to understand how to do it in the right way, we need to sort of understand what the what the issues and the nuances are. So. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of where it's coming from. It's, I launched it just over a year ago, um, and I'm on the third season now, and I am absolutely learning as I go,
1: um, and <laughs> it continues it.
0: to evolve, I continue to evolve, um, but it's been a lot of fun. I'm really, like, I've been enjoying it, you know, it's, it's a real pleasure to do. I enjoy it more than I expected to, so yeah, so far it's so
2: good. Okay, and what made you start the podcast?
0: Yeah, well, it really came from, you know, as a journalist, you know, if I write, like, one story for the New York Times, I might interview a dozen people yeah. for that, yeah. 15 people for that, right? And I'm going to have, maybe I'm going to, six of them are going to end up in the story, right? And the six wind end up, you know, I'll have a 45-minute conversation with somebody and they get, like, you know, three lines of space
2: in the story. See the podcast section, That's what you need.
0: <laughs> exactly, and i was just like these conversations are so yeah. fascinating yeah, exactly. I, was, yeah. I was learning so much yeah. and i was like i should like like it's not fair that like i get to have these fascinating conversations like just for me <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I could share these um i was learning so much from the conversations and i was i wanted i was looking for a way to share it kind of with a broader audience because yeah. i thought there might be people interested in that so it kind of came from yeah my experience of interviewing people as journalists and thinking I think there might be an appetite for, you know, a broader audience mm. to hear this kind of stuff. So that was kind of the genesis of it. And then, um, yeah, it sort of evolved from there.
2: See, you summed up why I think they should have an audio section, because that would have been like a podcast series <laughs> on the, a particular article that you're writing about, right? That could be the the title. Yeah. And All these interviews can be yeah. a different section of that that maybe necessarily don't, doesn't get into the final written piece. So why wouldn't you want to just hear I from I like people? the
0: way your brain works today. This is great. <laughs> like, wow.
2: Yeah, I don't know. So I thought, well, let's just pitch it out and see what happens. I don't know. Someone might say, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Keep, keep at it.
2: And you only do interviews on your podcasts? No solo episodes? Nothing just by yourself?
0: Um, I have yet to muster the courage for a solo episode. Oh. Um, other other friends in the podcasting community have said, like, oh, yeah, please just do it. I'm like, I don't I, like should you do so I-, I should just like i should just wing it I just give it a shot sometime and <laughs> try sorry um i'm like i'm a little bit too scared of the sound of my own voice oh she says during a podcast interview as a guest. <laughs> <laughs> um it's like yeah yeah as a guest, exactly um I'm not, I'm not sure what i would that would be interesting that people would find interesting I should I should listen to I haven't listened to any of your solo episodes yet I should listen to well it's my because I think maybe it would be interesting to to mix it up and then it would I my and those are quicker to produce too it's just you and the mic like
1: yeah
2: I don't know tell the reason why what's
0: what's your what's your approach to solo episodes yeah
2: there's a couple of reasons and I've been told by the podcasters why you should do it number one especially for you as a journalist there must be stuff that you don't record on audio And you could do like a weekly one where it's five, 10 minutes of the stuff you've learned through the week. Could be your research into a a subject. Maybe someone's changed regulations in a country. Maybe a a country's reopened because of regulations. So anyway, that could be one angle for you.
0: Like a little news roundup. Yeah,
2: but specific to travel, right? Yeah. And number two, someone said you want the listener to listen to you and not always the guest. So when someone comes on as a guest, they're not necessarily thinking straight away, oh, great, it's, James Hammond on your podcast is more like ah, oh, it's Paige interviewing James today. That's where you want to try and develop your own self as a podcaster. That's what someone said to me.
0: Interesting, mm. interesting. Wow, words of wisdom. <laughs> I'm taking notes, literally, yeah, literally okay. taking notes right now, James. Thank you.
2: So that's the only reason I do ten, fifteen minutes on a Friday. Nothing special. I do three pronged attack. Little summary of the, this week's episode. Something that I've maybe learned in the travel sphere and I'll finish with like travel stories because storytelling seems to be a popular way to showcase your podcast.
0: Nice. And, and then nice kind of like because you know your other episodes are longer, yes. way, kind of more sort of thoughtful ones, and this is sort of like a quick hit. and yeah. um, do you find that listeners are are more interested in the the Friday episodes or the Monday episodes or about even?
2: No, still Monday episodes.
0: It's still Monday episodes, but the but, the solo, when you do
1: something solo
2: yeah, there's a portion of the audience who likes shorter form. So they listen to the Friday episode because it's not two hours long, whatever it normally is. So I just yeah. heard a few people say like, oh, I don't listen to your podcast, it's too long. I'm like, oh, that's fair enough. Yeah. I started creating just a, a shorter form to see if I can attract those listeners. Interesting. Okay,
0: yeah, all right, you're inspiring me. Oh,
2: mm-hmm. wow. okay.
0: well,
2: okay. See, <laughs> we'll see, yeah. <laughs> okay, more questions about your podcast. Then we're gonna go some quick fire questions. I'm gonna fire at you. Okay. I've got here. I didn't come to this earlier. This is a very good point. How has your podcast influenced the way you travel? And you responded on here with the theme from several episodes is the danger of the single story.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So um that is one yeah one theme that has come up in in several episodes of the podcast is this basically like you know it's very easy to go to a place and you know you read a guidebook and you get your story of like what is the story of this place and you kind of see it as like kind of a superficial, um, you get a sort of a superficial one-sided perspective Mm. of the place and its history. And really every place that we're gonna go to in the world, whether it's like, you know, a famous European city or a little, you know, village somewhere in South America or, you know, a college town in North Carolina, um, there are many sides of that place and there are many perspectives on that place. And when you're looking at the, you know, the history of the culture of that place, um, it's really important to kind of keep that in mind. Um, so I think the way that my podcast has informed my travels is that it's taught me to look for that wherever I go. I think I probably would have had an instinct to some extent
1: mm-hmm.
0: beforehand, but not nearly so much. And um, and we were talking a bit before the before the recording started about my trip to Israel and Palestine. Yeah. Um, which you know I was there in May, and that's kind of a really nice example um, of this. This sort of approach of seeing sort of two sides because of course you know um it's a, <laughs> this is a place with a few very different sort of sides very, yeah. of the story and um and as a traveler i went there in may with a company that has this sort of dual narrative approach to tourism there where they the group is accompanied by a palestinian tour guide as well as an israeli tour
1: guide yeah, very
0: interesting that. so when you're going around you know jerusalem or going around bethlehem or um going around you know Tel Aviv, you're getting the history and the sort of the political relevance from both uh, an Israeli perspective and from a Palestinian perspective. Um, and it's just like, you know, that kind of approach is more honest um, and more, you know, just kind of authentic. And also it's more, more interesting, really. You know, you're seeing the place um, from these different viewpoints and understanding it, the place and its challenges in a, in a much more, yeah, much more nuanced way. So, yeah, that's, I would say, the the biggest single way in which the podcast has changed
3: the way I think
2: about traveling. Nice, which leads me nicely on to the episode that I checked out. So as we speak, the day of recording is the latest one, but I think by the time it comes out, it'd be a few episodes before, but it's 3.3, and I checked out Hussam Gibran, and he talks mm-hmm. about this, Israel and Palestine, and the whole yeah. traveling there in terms of different perspectives, but what I found interesting, apart from that as well, is that Palestine is kind of on the rise for tourism, like people are starting to go there more. And he kept calling the, the phrase that it's not just religious tourism, Is people want to go there and not just hear about that, they want to maybe just check out local culture, for example. Quite interesting.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, of course, you know, people, so Bethlehem lies within the West Bank, which is, you know, part of Palestine. And um, people have been traveling to Bethlehem for centuries, mm. right, to see, you know, for, this, for biblical reasons. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, one thing that he says in the podcast is that since he started working as a tour guide there, which was sort of in the 1990s, I think, and he was born in Bethlehem and now lives in Jerusalem, um, he's seen more interest in um, a more, yeah, a broader approach to understanding um, the place and, and its importance. And people want to come and do the biblical stuff, but there's also increasing sort of interest in understanding the modern sort of culture yeah. and um, you know other aspects of the history and in um, understanding the political situation. And that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think it's um, interesting. And, and personally, when I was in, um, you know, when I was in Bethlehem and Ramallah earlier this year, I found them fascinating places. Yeah. And you know, all that much more fascinating because of the, you know, the different perspectives that, that we, were, we were getting when we were there.
2: And I think it's possible now that if you want to go to Israel, that you can pop over to Palestine and do a local tour, or, or just go and check it out. Right. I'm, I'm sure it's possible.
0: Yes. Yes. I mean, if you're um, if you're an Israeli passport holder, then it's more complicated. Yeah, of
2: course. Um, but
0: if you're not in Israel, yeah, if you're not an Israeli passport holder, then um, then yes. And there are lots of different companies that offer um, trips, you know, within Palestine and you know, Israel and Palestine, including the one that I traveled with, which is called Mejdi Tours. Yeah. Um, but there are others as well. Um, and Hussam works as a guide for Mejdi. Yeah. He also works as a guide for National Geographic Expeditions. Um, so, yeah, like a quick Google search and you'll find, um, you know, if you're thinking of traveling to that part of the world or maybe a bit nervous about it, um, yeah, go with the group and you know, go with a guide and we'll be a very good hands. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe do a bit of research with a company, but uh, you, should, you, should find, you should be
2: able to find a good one. Yeah, he said that don't be scared. Their hospitality is, is second to none. They welcome you in, anyone at any time. Uh, He's quite honestly said the infrastructure is not quite there yet, it's quite raw. But there's guides there and you can go and learn about local culture and not just always specifically talk about the religious side of it. And obviously if you want to hear both sides in terms of the conflict or the politics there, you can hear about that as well. So I think it's an interesting dynamic. I think one I would incorporate when I visit uh, Israel, I think.
0: Yeah, 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 certainly. Oh um, yeah, have a great time when you go, certainly in Jerusalem. I mean, which is which lies, you know, in in Israel, is just a fascinating, fascinating place, yes. and one where it's, you know you can get so much more depth to your visit by by hearing different perspectives.
2: Yeah. Okay. And just a few more episodes, maybe if someone's new to your podcast, maybe ones you can just pick out one or two just to check out that are decent to start with.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, I mentioned the um, the Iceland episode earlier. Yeah. That was from season one. Um, and that really sort of goes in depth on, you know, the experience of tourism in Iceland and how it's changing. Um, and Inga is just a lovely sort of a TV. Um, There was also another episode that, um, that was an early episode in season two. So I think it ran in January last year. It looked at, I think the title is something like, can tourism help us understand the history of slavery in the United States? No. And it looked at how okay. some tourist sites are Changing the way that they talk about slavery, Um, and that was really inspired by a book that I read called "How the Word is Passed" by Clint Smith, which just kind of blew my mind when I read it. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, it's won a bunch of awards and stuff. But um, the um, yeah, looking at how important it is that these these tourist sites, right, like Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's um, you know former home, the Whitney Plantation um, in the South, like these are you know these places are kind of like really passing the history down for us now to the tourists who visit so how they do it and you know what they do and what they don't do i think is really is really important
3: mm-hmm. um so
0: I, th- I found that uh episode really interesting i at that one as well as, well as the, the airbnb one that's a popular yes absolutely yeah i
2: gonna check that mm-hmm. one out can't wait to check that one out okay and what's coming up for the podcast in series three what other subjects are coming
0: yeah so yeah so um If you're, you know, anybody who's kind of like curious to understand, you know, over tourism stuff, I have an um, episode coming up on Venice in which I interviewed an Italian journalist who like surprised me by saying there are actually museums in Venice that are suffering from having too few visitors.
3: Um, (laughs) And she was really,
0: I was, you know, yeah. And she was really saying kind of like Inga told me about Iceland. Yes, over tourism is a problem. And this place needs tourists. He's come, right? Wow. Like and it's become in the right way, come at the right time of year. Don't come as a day tripper, like come for four or five days and stay in a hotel yeah. and you know, come slightly out of season and you will be doing a wonderful thing for this place and the people who, who live there. You know, wow. which is like I'm not I wasn't expecting to to hear that on a podcast, mm. um, in this interview about Venice, I mean doesn't say it in too many words but it is like it's not a message of like stay away right it's a message of come but come in the right conditions and on the right terms interesting and with the right mindset you know yeah um so that's that's um yeah that's one i would highlight that's coming up in the next month
2: yeah got it okay and do you hear you have a website bettertravelpodcast.com
0: yes it's just bettertravelpodcast.com yeah and there you can find all the episodes as well as links to social media etc
2: yeah and you are available on all the classic stuff like spotify apple podcasts google podcasts all of them i guess
0: yes yeah yeah um and yeah and you can find us on um twitter and instagram um i say us because i used to sort of work with it and I was, so you can yeah. find me um, on on instagram yeah. and twitter at um better travel pod on Twitter and Better Travel Podcast. and Instagram.
2: Yeah, I'll put links to those social media sites on the show notes. And I was going to finish with, for your podcast, when you're in season, do you release week to week or is it, do you have a break or is there a certain schedule?
0: Yeah, so basically it's um, for seasons. Season one was I did one episode every week for 12 weeks. Yes. Yeah. And then paused for like six weeks or something. It was over Christmas. Yeah. Restarted in January and did... 12
1: episodes every week yeah
0: um, 12 weeks then had a bit of a long pause because <laughs> i was traveling the time
1: yeah
0: and then we started in september and now i'm taking a
1: slightly
0: more laid back approach i'm doing one episode every two, two weeks actually got it um, yeah every two weeks so every other every other thursday there's a new episode there. Yeah.
1: got it
2: awesome thanks for that and we're going to finish as usual with a couple of features on the podcast hey yeah Just a quick one before we carry on with the travel questions. I just want to say there are many ways to support this podcast. You can buy me a coffee and help support the podcast with $5. Or you can go to my merch store with the affiliate link with TeePublic, where there's plenty of merch available to buy, such as t-shirts, jumpers, hoodies, and also some children's clothing. Thirdly, which is free, you can also rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, or GoodPods. Also, you can find me on social media on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and TikTok. Simply just search for Wingin'It It Travel Podcast and you'll find me displaying all my social media content for travelling, podcasts and other stuff. Thank you. It's travel question time. We're now going to go to fire travel questions. I on purposely missed out the first question. Yeah, so the first question is to date... Name three countries that you would say have been your favourites to travel in. I think you've actually answered it in the first part in the notes section, but I didn't come to it because I thought I'd save it.
0: Okay, okay. I don't even remember what I put down ah. in the notes, so I'm sure what I'll say now is completely different. But, um, oh wow, okay, so first of all, I have to say that this might be kind of recency bias, yeah. but um, India, because I was just there last month, but like, oh my gosh, what a fascinating place. And I have to say Indian cuisine.
2: Ah, up there, is, one of the best. It
0: is my favourite, like, absolutely hands down a favorite um sort of cuisine that i've experienced anywhere in the world so india um is one i gotta say i'm biased but france it it is the world's most visited country yeah and um that yeah there's just so much to see from alps here where we live to obviously you know paris and lyon and you know Marseille to um Provence and the Pyrenees. I mean, so much to see in France, yeah. and we're really enjoying getting through this country. Um, finally, oh my gosh, um, maybe I'll say Nepal because I really enjoyed the trek that I did in Nepal. Um, actually a decade ago now, but um, yeah, oh, excellent, yeah, yeah. No, um, asking country and like, and pretty affordable. And, oh yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, it's wonderful.
2: Very quickly on the pool, I went there for four or five weeks, I think. Quite a few years ago have you seen oh, the documentary hmm. on netflix about the earthquake oh, I have not? oh i think it's brand new i started watching it last night it's a three-part oh, wow. about the three-part series oh, yeah
1: earthquake.
2: yeah yeah they, they cover yeah. Okay. they cover base camp Kathmandu, and langtang valley three pronged stories from that area pre and then post earthquake worth a watch
1: okay
2: cool okay the other country you put on that list you didn't mention was new zealand so we have to mention it because I lived there. Oh, New
1: Zealand. Yeah. yeah, so
2: what do you think?
0: Yeah, so I studied abroad in New Zealand. My ah. third year of college, I spent a semester down there. So I was there for like five months.
2: Where was that? Um, in Dunedin. Dunedin?
0: Dunedin, yeah, University of Otago. Yeah. Where were you in New Zealand? Wellington. Oh,
1: nice, yeah. nice.
0: Um. So, yeah, I, I loved my time in New Zealand and exploring, um, exploring around the North Island and, and South Island a bit as well. But at the end, I had a little trip up there. Yeah. Um, and I haven't been back since, that was 2003.
2: All right, okay.
0: And yeah. um, so I would love to get back down there sometime, but I'd love to my time there.
2: Amazing country. Dunedin's actually, if we didn't live in Wellington, that might've been our next port of call, would've been Dunedin. It gets a bit cold down there, but it's kind of reminds me of home a little bit. It's got Scottish influence down there.
0: Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I mean, oh, but June, oh my God, June was grim. And I was saying this like, little student flat with like zero insulation.
2: <laughs> Tough, okay. How many countries have you traveled to
0: but i would guess it's between 40 and 50. so not like you know not a crazy i mean certainly like not nothing but um not crazy number either but i think yeah my husband has been to a lot more
2: okay it's an interesting topic that isn't (laughs) it yeah country counting yeah
0: Yeah. um yeah i I just kind of thought like you know um especially living here in france I i didn't want to sort of feel the kind of like urge to to go to a new country when there's so much of this country that we haven't. Like, yeah, of I've never been to Bordeaux. I've never, you know, there's so many parts of this country that I want to see, and I didn't want to feel like, oh, we need to jump on a plane to Estonia for this long weekend or whatever to get that check mark. Got it. When, like, actually, we should be exploring this country that we you now you know, have chosen as our
1: home.
2: Yeah. So,
0: but yeah, I don't know. I, I can see the appeal because I did it for a long time, so but, um, I can I can sort see where it comes from.
2: Okay. And what about three countries that you've not traveled to that are next on your hit list?
0: Oh, wow. Okay, um, well, one is Cambodia.
1: Oh, okay.
2: I'm actually going there
0: this month.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to
0: Cambodia um, next month as part of my research for the book that I'm writing. Another one is Belize. Yeah. Um, I'll be going there early next year, also for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then beyond that, the other places I've been traveling for the book I have been before, but. Other big ones that I've never been to I've never been to Brazil or Thailand. Or okay. Japan. Yeah, there are a lot of um, uh, a lot of like South American and Asian countries that I have um that I've been to. So
2: okay, that's cool. Lots to explore. <laughs> okay. And you've lived in quite a few countries, so this would be an interesting answer. If you if you could live in another country right now for a year that you've not lived in before, where would you live?
0: Oh wow. Oh fascinating um all of them i don't know um <laughs> maybe i would say like i honestly i would love to live for a year i would live anywhere and i would be excited to live anywhere yeah. for a year except maybe afghanistan at the moment or iran right So anywhere like school i would find a year like like throw me anywhere really yeah
1: yeah okay um
0: put me somewhere where i don't speak the language and i can and i can learn it yeah um yeah but maybe i mean if i had my choice yeah maybe india because I find it, um there's so much to see there and I've only just seen like a, a, a tiny fraction of the country um, and there's so much to see and I would eat very well. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I think I was there three months, barely touched the surface. Oh my huge God, country. three
0: months, like well done.
2: Yeah, huge country. Okay, can you tell me a favourite beach that you've been to?
0: Yes. Um, yeah, okay, I'm going to say there's a place in Sierra Leone. So Sierra Leone, I was talking before, but... Um, yeah. You know, the kind of beaches and the forests, sort of rolling hills. There's a little island called Banana Island that's like a short, maybe like a couple of that We drive a couple of hours from the capital, Freetown, and then you get in a little motorboat and you go like twenty minutes off the coast. Nice. And it's this beautiful island. Um but it has a, a permanent population there. Um and it's people who've been you know whose families have been living there for centuries. Um, but they have beautiful beaches. And when we were living there We're living in sierra leone um there was a tiny little eco lodge um with just a couple of solar panels (laughs) very basic but just beautiful like fresh caught fish and you know like nice you know fresh fruit yeah and then you know a beach all to yourself um wow super warm warm water and there's actually one or when we were there and i think it was still there for a little while afterwards there was a place we could go scuba diving um on the island, it's some some Greek guy actually was had, was living out there when he was super operation. But I I don't super dive, so
2: no same. But yeah,
0: Banana Island, on Sierra Leone for sure.
2: Okay, interesting. What about one city in the world where you can drink coffee and watch the world go by?
0: Ooh, well now you got me thinking about when we were talking about coffee earlier. Um, the place in Italy that I remember having like coffee that just like amazed me yeah. it was actually in pompeii like oh. the, not the architectural not the, not the sort of um, archaeological excuse me um site but like the town of pompeii which is um all the same but i think minus one i yeah. um which is just next door i was there for a to report a story from new york times and i was sitting in this tiny little guest house and there was a very basic cafe just next to the guest house where i have a for breakfast um in the mornings yeah. and the
3: coffee were just <laughs> oh
0: like, I just wanted to cross. It was just amazing. <laughs> I just came right back. I remember I was there, I think I was there for like three days or something. on um, the last morning, I was like,
1: how how could I go
0: home? <laughs> it was so I going to say, and it was kind of like, you know, on a little, not on the street, but like, yeah. in a, you know, uh, yeah, on the, like, you know, you were sitting in the cafe a bit, but kind of opening onto the street. Mm. Um, so I would say, yeah, I could, I could sit there and sort of, you know, and it was, yeah, obviously a very popular place with such good coffee. Um, so this little coffee shop in, or little cafe in, in Pompeii, nice. right next to my guest house. Lord knows what it's called, I don't remember, but um,
2: it was, What's the
1: name I, of it? I could have sat there uh. for, for
0: a long time <laughs> enjoying my coffee. And then you have to have your coffee and then go for your, your walk around around Pompeii.
2: Wow. that try and find <laughs> that place? That'd be great for the coffee podcast, I'll see right? if I can
0: find it on Google Maps. I'll find it on Google Yeah, Maps. that'd be great. That'd
2: be <laughs> awesome, yeah. <laughs> and you'll probably agree here. Would you say that Italy is the best place to have coffee in terms of the taste?
0: Per- personally, that's been my experience. But then, um, of course, there are many places I have yet to drink coffee. But um, yeah, that's that's been my experience so far.
2: Okay, awesome. Can you tell me a favorite landmark that's going to be man-made or nature that you've seen?
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Um, Well, I'm going to have to say go with our sort of the local big one, which is Mont Blanc, um, the highest peak in Western Europe, which is just sort of like one valley over from here. Yeah, Um, and it's it's interesting. It's fascinating. I'm actually writing one chapter of my book on Chamonix and the area around Mont Blanc and tourism there. Okay. And and, you know, like as like everywhere, it's um, it's complicated here. It's an interesting story, but it's like when you drive around, like from our valley, you go down to the highway and then. Kind of around a corner and then boom like Mont Blanc is just there. it's like a it's like a sort of a you know a bass drum coming, boom and it's so big and so I mean we have tall mountains around yeah, us yeah. but Mont Blanc is just something else. It's very striking and it's just I love kind of getting that first view on a, on a nice blue day. It's so impressive. So yeah, it's a moment
2: Let's go for. I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. Favorite cuisine or food that you've experienced on your travels?
0: Oh yeah, Indian, and then probably yeah, followed by followed by Italian after
2: that. Okay, yeah, two classic answers. And what about maybe a country that you've travelled to that's been the best value for money? Oh,
0: interesting question. Interesting question. I mean, I gotta say, if you're um, if you're up for some kind of maybe more rustic
1: yeah
0: conditions that's me um west africa is very affordable all oh, right okay yeah <laughs> um yeah, I, oh totally i mean the tourism infrastructure there if you want to stay in a super nice place by super nice i mean like you have a shower with hot water and a television whatever. then you can probably pay pretty close to western you know prices like
1: what you pay. Yeah
0: in Europe, but if you're willing to have to kind of rough it a little bit, you can know, have very cheap, very cheap combination for sure, like mm-hmm. the problem. Um so yeah, and you can, you can get around cheaply in public transit, um, you know, kind of bota vodas, like you know so you have motorcycle taxis or the kind of you know shared vans. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, West Africa, certainly very, very affordable.
2: Okay. That's a great tip. What about a favorite trek or walk that you've done?
0: Oh um I'm gonna have to say um, one around just around in our neighborhood there's so many um, wonderful sort of like overnight like routes that you can do where you're going up to a, a hut and spend the night in a mountain hut and yeah kind of carrying on the next day. so um, a few years ago my husband and I climbed Montbue um which is a mountain about just over 3,000 meters that's okay. like literally just over yeah. there
3: yeah
0: and um, so that was a fun. And we did it over two days, so not like a super long hike, yeah. but um, you could make it longer if you wanted to. But yeah, love the, the kind of hut-to-hut hiking system we have here in the office.
2: Nice. Okay, got a few more questions, then we'll wrap up. My next question is going to be, have you got a favourite high adrenaline activity that you've done on your travels?
0: Ooh. Um, well, when I was in New Zealand, I did go, go bungee jumping and skydiving.
2: Fair. Yeah. Yeah,
0: as one does when one of course is 21. You do. Yeah, yeah, you got to. <laughs> um, but here in the Alps, I don't know if I would even call it high adrenaline, but um, maybe four times now I've gone paragliding, um, which is really a very common sport here.
2: Yeah, it's top of yeah, my list.
0: And two of, two of those four times have been for articles for I, which I was doing research. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what a job.
0: <laughs> Where I was like profiling paragliders one man who the man i i about the guy who invented paragliding actually oh. i did that for um the Inflight magazine of united airlines that was seven years ago oh yeah yeah that was super fun i went paragliding with him he's like in the 70s now Crikey. and he took me paragliding on the spot where he like took the para- first paragliding jump 1979 I, I think it was he, like literally jumped off the side of the mountain with uh skydiving
3: parachute right got it and heck,
0: it worked Anyway, here's the paragliding—it's um, yeah, fun and beautiful, and just a wonderful way to get another perspective on the mountain landscape here
1: too.
2: Yeah, it's top of my list. I need to go and do. I love doing heighty stuff. I don't like you. I don't dive. Don't go in water, but I do like going to heights and maybe jumping off of things or out of things.
0: Yeah, nice.
2: Yeah. Okay. Last question for the podcast is: if someone right now is not sure. Of a reason of why they should travel or a bit scared to maybe make the jump what words of advice or wisdom could you give them to tell them hey you should go and do it
0: yeah yeah yeah. i mean i would say you know keep in mind the kind of things that we're talking about before about you know the power of travel to open your mind and you know shake you out of your comfort zone and i would also say you know think about the mindset that you have when you travel and realize actually you don't necessarily need to sort of travel to a new country or a new part of the world mm. in order to have that kind of like life-changing experience um, that even by kind of traveling to a new corner of you know, the state where you're living or this even like a new part of the city where you live that you've never been to, um, it, by keeping an open mind and you know reaching out to people who you haven't spoken to before or different communities that you haven't interacted with before that you can have a lot of the same benefits that you might get by traveling you know, to another continent. Mm. So it's a, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be a big trip in order for you to sort of get the benefits that travel can deliver for us. But it's all really in the mindset that you take when you're, when you're interacting with, um, you know, with the world
2: around you. Paige, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and making time. It's been an absolutely brilliant chat. And I've learned a lot. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, thank you so much James, I really enjoyed it and I'm so excited for your idea for um, you know, podcasts, for you know, newspapers and magazines.
2: Anyone, anyone can run with it.
0: No, 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 go for it, i you there.
2: <laughs> I'll tell you why I like it, it's because I don't write, so I'm like, I'm a rubbish writer, I think I am. I don't know English that well, I can't write that well, I, don't, I do read books, but I don't read articles or stuff like that very often i'm like well what about the people who like listening to stuff like podcasts like why wouldn't you just have like a little podcast series on their article that you want to create so if you want to do some tourism in venice have a few podcast episodes 30 minutes long 20 minutes just talking about the same subjects that's written about so why not
0: well thank you so much for having me james it's been such a fun conversation and i'm looking forward to listening to more episodes of your podcast in the future thanks so much again for having me on absolutely
2: no worries thanks for coming on really appreciate it Thank you for listening to my WinginIt It Travel podcast episode today. You can find me on Instagram at James Hammond Travel or WinginIt Travel podcast. You can search for both. I release weekly clips of this podcast episode as well as photos from the last 8 to 10 years of my travels. You can also follow me on TikTok, Facebook and Pinterest by searching WinginIt It Travel podcast. I do release daily content to do with travel and the podcast throughout the week. Also, check out my website, jameshammond.org. There's content about myself, my travels, and there's also a newsletter sign up as well as a contact form. Finally, please rate and review the podcast on Podchaser. This is my platform of choice. Alternatively, you can rate this on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. This really helps the podcast gain a bit of traction for the future in terms of guests and content. And I'm glad to see that you guys are listening out there, reviewing it, and enjoying the content so far. Stay safe, stay humble, keep listening, keep traveling, and I'll catch you soon. Cheers, James.